Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave, three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com, so when you shop on Amazon, it would be cool if you would first click on the Amazon.com link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page, and Amazon will kick a few bucks back to Rocktail Hour to help fund this free podcast. Today, Tim is going to bring us the story behind Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. Tim? Thank you. I'm, I'm going to ease into this just a little bit. I haven't recorded with this group for quite some time, and so you're just going to have to bear with me. This may be a little bit of stream of conscious, but I had some interesting experiences recently, uh, even as recent as today, and I want to tell you about a couple of them. This is going to be a Salvador Dali painting of podcasts. It is. It's <laughs> going right. to be, like I described the White Album, was like my grandmother's jewel box. Some of it was expensive jewelry, some of it was gaudy, some of it was costume jewelry, but when she put it all together, it looked great. And so there you go. <laughs> And that's the White Album to me. Yeah, make this this podcast can be like Revolution Nine. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, let's no, hope no. it's not like piggies. Um, <laughs> recently, Treg and I and, and and we had a guest Quinn uh, up in Utah. Uh, we did some recordings up there, and and I hadn't done recordings for a while. Um, as you know, we we recently released a podcast on Three Dogs Night, Joy to the World, and we had a great discussion about how that song crossed all demographics. Everybody seemed to love that song. Even in, in, the, in the 70s when there was the conservative parents, they seemed to really latch on to that song and embrace it as uh, for what it was. It was just a song about joy, literally, and it made people happy. And it, was, it, was it the most cutting edge or artistic rock and roll song ever? Maybe not, but it certainly was a great rock and roll song, and it spoke to people on a level that was inclusive and, and uh, spoke to everyone uh, across all age groups. We recorded that podcast at the end of November, and then uh, around Christmas time, I was in church, and I was looking at the program, and the choir was going to sing Joy to the World as part of the program. And for about three seconds, I wondered, why are they going to sing Jeremiah was a bullfrog? <laughs> I couldn't even begin to think about the other Joy to the World for Christmas time. And to me, that epitomizes and wraps up our discussion from the previous podcast <laughs> about how iconic that that song really is. But I, I want to talk a little bit about Joy because more than anything else, I think probably the thing that's brought me more joy uh, outside of friends and family um is movies and music and and i and i think of those equally now i'm a, i'm a real movie buff um but i love music and i love all kinds of music i you know i hope i don't offend anybody i don't really like country i don't really care for rap but i love all kinds of music and i and music speaks to me on different levels and and we've had many discussions about that in podcasts and today uh, in the airport as i was you know uh waiting and on the plane to come down here to record um I I started listening to some of the music on my phone and I haven't I haven't accessed that for a long time. I just really don't have time to sit down and listen to music very often. And so I started listening and I I would listen to a song and that would make me happy and then another one would come on and I go, "Oh, I love that song and that one made me happy." And I got to listening on the airplane and I was going to watch whatever was on the in-flight entertainment, but I just kept listening to music and I just 
was so happy today when I was listening to music and, and I just hit me again that, um, when you talk about real joy, it, it, the things that bring you the, the greatest joy in life are sometimes the simplest things. And just getting to sit down and have my own time to listen to music today just was an incredible experience that was really emotional. Um, it's just not something I've been able to do for a long time. And, and that segues into how much I like Jethro Tull. I don't know why. If if music were a person, I don't think Jethro Tull's music would be me, but I wish it was. How's that? <laughs> okay. I, I wish Jethro Tull has like washboard abs. Right. No, I six just, foot three blondes. I, I just want perpetually I, in his twenties. I just want to be what Jethro Tull's music represents to me, right? And I know I'm not that. I, you know, for whatever reason, but I, I remember as probably as a 14 or 15 year old working in the pizza restaurant, like I've discussed before in previous podcasts and hearing thick as a brick on the radio. And, and I had to ask people, gosh, who's that, you know, who is singing that? Because I didn't, I wasn't exposed to rock and roll music at home. I wasn't allowed to. So I, I had to really rely on the older guys at the pizza restaurant to kind of cue me in to clue me into uh, who some of the groups were. And, Ian Anderson was old when he was a young. He's just got an old soul that he's sort of grown into as an old man. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think he has this reputation now as an old man for being, you know, perpetually young or whatever, right? Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, it to me, it just felt so mature. And and I'm not saying that it is or it isn't. I'm just saying that's how it felt for me. And and thick as a brick, um, really. Uh, I, I just appreciated it. I, I, I love the words to the song. I can't say that they're necessarily poetic, but I can say that they're great words. And um, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I've always, I've for a long time, I've, I've loved Jethro Tull. And probably it was that moment uh, as I started to, to hear uh, more music by Jethro Tull and to learn more about their music. That was really the beginning of the Beatles becoming number two for me as far as, you know, being my favorite group. Love the Beatles, but if, if, and I probably would still pick the Beatles catalog of music if I was stranded on a, on a deserted island only because of the different types of music that they play. But I still, I still like Jethro Tull's music, uh, probably more than than any other artist so there you go for what you're the deepest jethro tull fan that i know <laughs> probably one of the only people i know that would put jethro tull ahead of the beatles That's oh, an interesting I, I just, commentary i just i just love the music and, and again because i enjoy the music on a level that I, I don't know maybe that makes me sound pretentious but i enjoy it on a level that that goes beyond you know when i listen to the beatles i enjoy the beatles love the beatles but i really appreciate it. it's just so relaxing and and there's moments in in Jethro Tull's music where you're just like wow that's just beautiful and how did they come up with that the musicality of Jethro Tull and, and the arrangements of of all the different instruments that they play just blow my mind sometimes I'm with you so I put, put him in the top 10 easily yeah. maybe top 5 I'm more of a casual Jethro Tull fan um I could never put him ahead of the Beatles but certainly I'm, I'm with you and it's cool that they, they touched you. They touched you and they, they became a part of your formative years is what I'm understanding right. oh, from absolutely. what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that, it's, it's seared into your consciousness in terms of the way you view music. I took, I took the Beatles' music seriously, particularly their later music, obviously. 
but it but I really started taking rock and roll music seriously as something to just sit and listen to and think about when I started listening to Jethro Tull. Yeah, and then as, as I got to uh, I, I went to a concert in 1984, and and that just solidified it for me. But I, I'm going to give you a little background on on Jethro Tull, um, uh, how they got their name, because I I think there's always been kind of a urban legend that they just chose the name because they thought it would be funny to name to name their band after the guy that invented the plow, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Jethro Tull was, of course, a, an 18th century agriculturalist. But um, the band formed early on, and they began playing in England under different names because you often couldn't get booked again uh, unless you were a new band that nobody would ever heard of. So they would change their name repeatedly. So they actually... Um, played under Navy Blue, they played under Ian Anderson's Bag of Nails, and they played <laughs> under Candy Colored Rain, uh, to name just a few of the names that they played under. In fact, um, Ian Anderson tells a story about looking at a poster and thinking, well, that sounds like an interesting band, only to realize that that was them. <laughs> they were, <laughs> that was the name they were playing And why did under. they do that again? Why did they do stage uh, names for their band? Because... Um, they oftentimes couldn't get a second gig under the same name. Uh, the people that were booking gigs wanted newer bands, and and so they would, at least you know, as the research shows, they they had to change their name so they look like they'd a never been guy. booked before, hmm. right? The booking agents, uh, according to the research, often were the ones that would give the names to the band, and one of the booking agents was a real historian allegedly, and he's the one that decided to name them Jethro Tull, and again, he was a agricultural agriculturalist in the 18th century who among other things invented the horse-drawn hoe and the horse-drawn uh, seed drill so you know there you go for what that's worth also you know Jethro Tull is really really well known um, for Ian Anderson and his flute and and that's that's really almost the defining image of, of Jethro Tull as Ian Anderson playing the flute and, 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 and often going on, you know, long flute solos, especially in con- concert, which are, you know, which are amazing. But Ian Anderson did not play the flute prior to being in Jethro Tull. I didn't know this. I thought he was an accomplished flautist long before he ever joined Jethro Tull or formed Jethro Tull. But he literally, um, could not learn to play the guitar as well as some of the other members in the band, and he wanted to set himself apart, so he went out and he bought a flute, and he started playing on stage, and and as he says, it was literally a flute lesson every night. I had to get better every time we had a gig. Was he self-taught on the flute? Uh, Well, it doesn't say, but it it says that he learned on the fly, right? Because I I know a ton of people that are kind of self-taught on guitar, because they're the ubiquitous one. And then two, you can kind of figure it out. Even mm-hmm. like before the internet, you could figure it out basically and get basic chords. But the flute, I've tried to play a flute. There, It's hard to just even get a note to come out of a flute. Right, So that's yeah. interesting that he kind of just picked it up yeah, I don't know on the if, fly and it worked. I don't know if he took lessons and, and then tried it, but hmm. I, he he apparently was living in an apartment that was very cold, and so he bought himself a large trench coat, and then he bought himself a flute, and that was sort of his image as a, as a rocker for quite a long time. It, you know, a lot of the images, you'll see him holding his flute, and he's wearing a trench coat. And wearing, so, and he usually stands on one leg and had his other leg yeah, yeah, perched yeah. up, yeah, that tree was, style. Yeah, later on, yeah, mm-hmm. he still tries to do that. I, I worry that he might break a hip doing that. But. <laughs> no disrespect to Ian Anderson. I heard that he picked up the flute because he didn't think he could ever be as good as Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton. Well, that's true. 
Yeah. It, well, yes. it's, that's <laughs> he was possible. right about that. But actually, um, according to the, to the research that I did, um, the manager of the band at the time wanted somebody else to be the front man because that person could play the guitar better. And he didn't want to be relegated to rhythm guitar where he was really only like a third-rate rhythm guitar player anyway, and he didn't want to be known as one of the third-rate guitar players among many. Hmm. And so he decided he wanted to pick up the flute. But, you know, I've seen him in concert. He's an incredible musician, and he can play all kinds of instruments. And hmm. so, you know, I don't know if over time he got better or... You know, maybe he's not a world-class guitarist, but he can he can certainly hold his own, you know, in two or three songs during during a concert. But yeah, I have much respect for Ian Anderson. So "Thick as a Brick" is both a song and an album. Um, the the song that we commonly know that's about three minutes long was an excerpt of the "Thick as a Brick" album. Uh, the Thick as a Brick album is all one song. Uh, it's two-sided. It's about 44 minutes long. And what we commonly hear on the radio or in compilation albums is is something that they took and cut down for radio play, which is a beautiful song. And and when you when you hear the song, it's really different than when you sit and you listen to the album. The album is incredible. An, an interesting story how the album came about. Uh, they had just released Aqualung in 1971, which is a great album in and of itself. But for whatever reason, Ian Anderson didn't like the idea that uh, the critics called it a concept album. He didn't agree with them, and it bugged him that they kept calling it a, a concept album. Whether it was a great concept album or it was a mediocre concept album, he just didn't want it to be a concept album. So he was actually influenced by Monty Python's humor. He he was a fan of Monty Python, and he thought, well, I'm going to lampoon concept albums like Yes and uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer by writing this kind of tongue-in-cheek concept album, a real concept album, and I'm going to lampoon those uh, concept albums like the movie Airplane uh, hmm. con- did, you know, the movie Airport, hmm. although Airplane wasn't out at the time, but he describes it as, that's really what I was trying to do, you know, was lampoon these these albums. And so... Do you know if he had, like, Pet Sounds and Sgt. Peppers in his crosshairs? Was he trying to do that too? Was he bothered by them, Not by those the- albums as concepts? Or is it more like the the concept albums of his time? Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. And, and he specifically cites Yes and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, although he doesn't, mm. he doesn't name an album. And so they, they wrote this uh, album around the premise that this eight-year-old kid named Gerald Bostock had won a poetry contest. And then he later was stripped of his award because he said some unnamed expletive and, and he had questionable mental health. And so from the very beginning, it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, saucy kind of story. The The, the album art was uh, a newspaper that that had uh, some a lot of satirical articles, and then it published the entire lyrics of Thick as a Brick as a poem, and then, of course, it was written by Gerald Bostock. And on the album, actually, um, to be cheeky, they actually credited Gerald Bostock, who was a fictional person. A lot of people think that Gerald Bostock was a real kid. Uh, was a fictional person as, as one of the writers of the album. And, and cool. so it was all just kind of tongue-in-cheek, which ended up being one of the greatest concept albums of all times. Uh, it's just a great album, period. And then it was critically acclaimed. It was uh, it was well-received. It did very well. And um, they toured. And originally they toured and they would play the whole album. And it was kind of like performance art. The, they would come out uh, before before the 
they began to perform. And it looked like people coming out and setting up the stage and doing some other things. And then they started uh, doing funny things like uh, taking phone calls on stage while they were setting up. And a guy would come out in a scuba outfit and then eventually they would... You know, they would strip off their coats and and it would reveal themselves to be the musicians and they'd begin to play. And so they they toured in 1972, but then it wasn't again until 2012 that they that they played it again in, in its entirety. And that's when um, he released cool. Thick as a Brick 2, which is a great album as well. Um, was and, it different? Yeah. That, well, I don't know Thick as a Brick 2 It all. was. It was... Uh, it was a follow-up uh, about Gerald Bostock when he was older, um, and and so they played Thick as a Brick, had a little intermission, came back and played Thick as a Brick, too, and probably the best concert I've ever been to. It was incredible. Wow. Um, but, you know, there's that 40-year gap where they didn't perform it live ever again. Wow. And so it was pretty awesome. Can you explain, since it is a concept album, I'm not enough of a fan to know, what was the concept? What is Thick as a Brick? What's it about? Or maybe you're going to go there. And I'm jumping the gun. You know, the only thing I can gather is that it all runs together as one thing, as opposed to being a group of separate songs. Mm. In fact, it wasn't until iTunes that he he actually agreed to go ahead and have it. Uh, actually, iTunes had been out for a long time before he agreed to have the tracks separated into different uh, titles and, and running time so that you could buy them individually. Like Pink Floyd wouldn't do that for a long time, but now you can. Yeah. Now you can buy them individually. Because of that, that it's wow. it's much cheaper than if you if you buy the 40th anniversary version that is not separated. You can still buy that, but it's the same album. It just goes from one to the next, and you could buy the individual songs. Although I don't know why you would. I mean, they all run together. Yeah. And um, I mean, even even what we recognize as as the song "Thick as a Brick." Um, runs much longer than three minutes, and it's not radio kind of music. You know what I'm saying? And it, it's wonderful. It's great to listen to, but it certainly wouldn't have a home on radio. You know, especially at 44 minute running time. So when they played the original "Thick as a Brick" live, would it also just be like a big one big 44, 45 mm-hmm. minute song? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's exactly what they did when I when I saw it in 2012. They just kept playing and. Although they would stop occasionally and do some kind of fun things. Instead of having a, a telephone now, they had a Skype conversation with somebody. And, <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, it was, it was quite good. Um, they had a guy that, that uh, has performed on Broadway, had uh, success on Broadway that actually came out and sang some of the uh, some of the songs uh, in Ian Anderson's place, which was okay. He was very, very good. That allowed Ian Anderson to do some of his stuff, especially like during locomotive breath in a, a studio setting, you might be able to do a, a, be playing the flute and singing at the same song at the same time, but you can't do that in a live concert. And this guy was, this guy was good. You know, he was really young. He was much younger than the others. Did he have a good rock voice? It wasn't like a Broadway guy. Oh yeah. Operatic. Yeah. 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 Like a good yeah rock he, he, I, I didn't mind him singing my favorite band's music oh, by cool. any means. And Ian Anderson sang enough uh, uh, that it, it it was pretty seamless and it didn't seem like you had somebody else standing in for mm-hmm. Ian Anderson at all. It was it was really it was really good. I really, really enjoyed it and I had no no complaints about that at all. That brings up some interesting information that the band Really, the only two members of the band that have have been consistent are Martin Barre and 
and Ian Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin joined the the band uh, the year after they formed, and he's been with them the whole time. Uh, but there's been 25 other musicians that have come and gone, and wow. and so. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac really was never the same band and uh, ever until uh, I think Rumors, and and then they kind of hit that um, combination and and recipe of w- what was really going to work. Although you know, I don't know that that's necessarily true. You know, he, uh, all of his albums work for the most part, but he's very prolific and. You know, there's been some albums that have been others. And, of course, he, he releases under his own name uh, a lot. And, in fact, um, he he released an album, a third album that's related to Gerald Bostock uh, called Homo Rectus. And, and that was um, more from the perspective of, of um, what uh, Gerald Bostock thought as an adult. Although Thick as a Brick 2 was about him as, as an adult, and that was an Ian Anderson album as well. Thick as a Brick 2 was not a Jethro Tull album. It was an Ian Anderson album. Although I don't know how you separate that, because who really is Jethro Tull if it's not Martin and Ian Anderson? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm, so if, if they're both there, how do you distinguish between who you are? Whatever, yeah, the, na- the name of the band that's on the marquee. Yeah. And, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Who owns the name Jethro Tull, I wonder? I have no idea, you know? Is it, you know, it certainly can't be all 25 of the people that have ever been in it. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. The album took only two weeks to record, and it was written in less than a month. Ian Anderson had written most uh, most of the beginning of it, but didn't have any idea what was to follow. And he would write during the night, and the next day the musicians would come in and learn the music, and they'd and they'd, and they'd record it. And often much of what you're listening to on that album was done in one take. So that's, that's incredible. Thick as a brick, uh, has been named by Rolling Stone as the eighth best concept album of all time. Uh, I don't know what that means necessarily. I, you know, when you, when you start developing lists, you can find a list for everything, but, uh, Rolling Stone is a pretty credible source. And when you look at who they are, uh, uh, the company that they keep in this category, it's pretty telling. Number 10 is Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Number nine is The Wall by Pink Floyd. Number eight, Thick as a Brick. Number seven is uh, Animals by Pink Floyd. <laughs> Number six is Rush Hemispheres. Oh, okay. Uh, number five is Genesis Selling England by the Pound. <laughs> number four is Genesis The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Number three is Yes, Close to the Edge. I think that harkens back to him sort of making fun of Yes. Uh, Number two is Dark Side of the Moon. Number one is... Sgt. Pepper's. Rush, 2112. Oh, wow. Wait a second. Am I wrong in thinking of both Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's as concept albums? No, not necessarily. I, I, I think... I don't know about Pet Sounds, but Sgt. Pepper's is clearly... Not necessarily a, a continuation of of themes and ideas necessarily. Uh, they're certainly separate songs, but they they have um, some interesting effects that obviously George Martin was experimenting with and worked into that. But um, I've never heard of Sgt. Pepper's being called a, a concept album. Hmm. Maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering my rock history incorrectly, but my understanding was that McCartney's one of his inspirations, in fact, his principal inspiration for wanting to do an album like Sgt. Pepper's, 
was Pet Sounds, and it's something that Brian Wilson always took great pride in, mm. that he had written that, and they were, and Paul McCartney said, oh, there's kind of a concept album, I want to copy it, but maybe I'm confusing my kind of vernacular or terminology, maybe it's not like officially a concept album, because I would think either one of those or both of them should be on that list. If they are concept, well, albums. if they are concept albums, certainly Sergeant Pepper should be on there. Yeah. Well, I've got to say, not to um, derail this conversation into the idea of concept albums, but interestingly, this is another list that I just found online, and it does have—at least I'm not thinking incorrectly—it has Pet Sounds as number six, it has Thick as a Brick as number five, and then it goes uh, it has Rise and Fall of Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. as huh. four, and then it's got Sergeant Pepper's as three. Tommy, the Who, is number two, and then Dark Side of the Moon is number one. I mean, yeah, I like that. You can list make a better. list of anything. I, yeah. I actually but do I like that list better. I like that it puts Thick as a Brick higher, and and in my mind, there's not a better concept album in the world than Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon is just a great, great album. It is the epitome of concept albums. Oh, it's the, isn't it the great? Or it's the longest at the top of the longest album yes. on yes. the charts of all time. Yeah, thirty yeah. something years. Yeah, nothing's yeah. going to touch it. No. No, incredible. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon is now that's timeless music, right? Oh, I mean, there's there's certain albums that you can go back and listen to, and you think, well, that didn't stand the test of time. You know, a hundred years from now, people are going to still be awed by Dark Side of the Moon, and that's why it's been on the the charts. There's yeah. anybody that knows about it or hears about it wants to buy it and listen to it. On a very long road trip up to Utah, maybe a year or two ago, I required my kids at night mm-hmm. to just stop talking and listen, and I turned it up really loud, and I played <laughs> the entire album. I had to skip over Us and Them and some of the longer, mm-hmm. you know, Great Gig in the Sky stuff, but I made them listen to it, because I said, you guys need to understand, this is as much of a history lesson as it is oh, about absolutely. trying to help you understand about yep. good rock and roll. Nice. Yeah, and when you talk, this is a great way to sort of end what I started out talking about. When you talk about joy... You listen to you listen to Dark Side of the Moon. Thick as a brick is great. I know no disrespect to Thick as a brick. Obviously, I, I wanted to talk about it because I love it. But Dark Side of the Moon—that's pure joy, uh, written down on paper and expressed through people playing music. It's unmatchable. That's like <laughs> Stairway to Heaven. Sorry, Stairway to Heaven is another one of those. Stairway to Heaven is just inspired music. Yep. I would have been thrilled with a whole album of Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if Jimmy Page and Robert Plant had just kept going. Extended it. Yeah. Did a 44-minute version of it. I could handle that, yeah. I listened to Money the other day, and and um, I wanted my son to hear it, because I know he's heard it before, but I don't know that he's ever really listened to it, right? So we were in the car, and I turned it up really loud. And when you listen to Money, and you listen to every sound in that song— how how can somebody perfectly put together that many sounds to come up with the sum of that song? It's incredible. Genius. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And certainly would never be able to get past the you know audition phase of American Idol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're too ugly. Yeah. <laughs> They're too ugly. Roger yeah. Waters was not a handsome man. Yeah. Although, I will say, David Gilmour was, uh, he spent some time in his career as a model. Yeah. He was a good David, looking guy. David Gilmour was certainly better looking than the others. That's and not saying Ian much, Anderson, though. too. Tall oh, and, yeah. and lanky and yeah. not a super attractive dude. Um, I love I love listening to some of these guys that were hard rockers, you know, back in the 70s, and now they're in their 70s. And uh, you hear them on interviews, and they're just so proper. Well, you know, we were playing music, and it was quite exhilarating. And, you know, it was a lovely time, really. 
you know, and you're just like... <laughs> they sound so proper. Yeah. <laughs> I used to slit, a, slit up my forehead and stick some acid in. It was great. Yeah. It really made me trip out a lot yeah. when I was on stage. It really worked for me. It's beautiful. There were women that came up to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Would you like some tea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm done. Well done. Great tribute to a, a great album. And you know what? That actually makes me need to go back or prompts me to want to go back and listen to Thick as, Thick as a Brick. Not the song, but the entire album. It's entire been, album. for me, yep. years since I've done that. So I'll make sure I, I do that and make it happen. So you can listen to a clip of the song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rock Tell Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong. And we do get mail from time to time, and we love it. So please feel free to write us, and we'll always respond. And if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be, good, that would be a good subject for Rock Tale Hour, definitely write in. If you think we're just lame, keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. Until the next Rock Tale Hour, rock on. Rock on.